0: 7654321.
1: You'll never have the sacred stone. Oh, this, you crazy mother.
0: Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this classic episode of Dead Pundits Society. In case you've been hiding under a rock the last week or so, we're currently in between seasons two and season three on the podcast. Season 3 drops in a matter of a week or two. It's going to feature a website, YouTube videos each week with a YouTube channel, and article content on that website as well. So everybody stay tuned for that. I've been working frenetically on getting all of that together. I'm really excited to drop that in the beginning of May at some point in a week or thereabouts. Got a really excellent lineup of podcast guests scheduled already. You're going to be hearing from the likes of Cedric Johnson, Vivek Chibber, Sean Guillory, and many, many others to kick off season three. That's coming up in a matter of just a couple of weeks. Everybody hold on to your butts. A lot of great DPS media content is coming your way very, very soon. Until then, please enjoy my repeat of this excellent chat from about a year ago with Ed Rooksby. We talked about structural reforms and socialist strategy. This discussion, I can't overstate it enough. This discussion is at the heart of everything that DPS is about. So I wanted to re-air this. Had a fun chat with Ed Rooksby. it was the first time I was able to chat with him. And we have since sparked off a great working relationship. We've heard from him a couple of other times since then. And you will definitely be hearing more from him as Season 3 kicks off here in just a couple of weeks. As I mentioned at the outset, patrons of the Dead Planet Society will be getting an episode... A B-Side, that is. Each week, a subscriber-only episode coming their way. If you're not a subscriber, you're going to miss out. It's going to be very sad. You're only going to be getting these classic episodes, which are pretty good, let's be honest. But you're going to be missing out on the freshy, fresh content. So head over to patreon.com slash pundits and smash that subscribe button, and you will get access to last week's B-Side, our entire back catalog of B-Sides, as well as this week's B-Side. We're going to be dropping one of those once per week, as long as we are in this little season two, season three break. So the patrons will not be missing out. Thanks to all of our patrons past and present for your support. We couldn't be preparing for this season three expansion without you. All right. Without further ado, here's my interview with Ed Rooksby from a little over a year ago on structural reforms and social strategy. Enjoy. brings us into the the fundamental sort of uh, meat of the show here. We're going to be talking about an essay that you just wrote and published. It's in Critique, the Journal of Socialist Theory. It's called Structural Reform and the Problem of Socialist Strategy Today. And we get at this inside, outside structural reform, contradictions of capitalism and organizations and all of that, what we've just talked about for the last 10 minutes or so. So it's all very apt I'm gonna put this essay up on the show notes. You have been so kind to put it on your website. Hopefully, you get so much attention that we crash it temporarily. Uh, we'll, we'll see. But uh, I, you know, I, I, I came across this essay. I, I can't say enough good things about it. Uh, not only because I like your work and it, it's very parallel to mine, because you know I'm, I'm a good narcissist like everyone. But it really does cover a lot of the content that longtime listeners of the show uh, will be very, very familiar with. So we want to get into that. In terms of, you know, bit by bit, piece by piece, we're going to do a close read of this. So tell us a little bit about the impulse behind writing the piece. I mean, clearly it's very topical. You're talking about Syriza and you're looking ahead at a, at a Corbin government yeah. uh, in the UK. But but take us back to the moment that you first conceived of this piece. Um, what led you in that direction?
1: Well, i kind of, I mean... Interested in this sort of area, Paul and Andre Gortz and structural reform, ever since my PhD, which I finished in 2008. I kind of didn't do that much with it after I finished my studies. And it was only with, I mean, clearly something changed um, after the financial crisis, um, particularly, you know, around uh, when when Syriza was starting to make gains, 2012 ish. And then you get this kind of amazing wave of radical left formations that spring up in the kind of space vacated by the mainstream social democratic formations like, you um, know, ASOC, but you've also got the, um, you yeah, know, what's going on in, in Spain, the, the kind of collapse of social democracy into Austerian parties, just like any conservative party. And you get the rise of groups like, um, like Podemos and the left bloc in Portugal. And then also Bernie Sanders, you know, that these kind of movements, they take different forms, don't they? But they all kind of have, it seemed to me they had the the same kind of core in common, which was this idea of a combination of the kind of classic electoral or parliamentary campaign to to form a government, but supported by sort of genuinely mass forms of mobilization, uh, sort of grassroots organizations. So they they, they weren't the, the, the kind of classic social democratic formations. They were something new. And it seemed like the stuff that i had been interested in a few years ago had this re- renewed currency. It was what was happening. And so I wanted to think about what these sort of resources from the past, particularly from the 70s and the 60s to some extent, right. um, can tell us about what's happening now. In some senses. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's so there's the whole... Revivify something. And your piece, you bring up at one point uh, early on in the intro that... This is at once uh, a new phenomenon. Uh, this would have uh, – these uh, left coalition parties or, or fractions or whatever you want to call it sort of emerging. On the one hand, that's very new because it's a very new kind of political economic context after the Great Recession mm. and the uh, you know fiscal crisis of the state, uh, the most recent one in the euro crisis and all the rest of it. But it's also old in so far as the, the stakes and the terms of the debate are somewhat old. So it sounds to me like uh, you, know, you you came to this topic through uh, a series of disappointments, say with Pasok in Greece, which was a, a socialist party at one point. Papandreou, the one-time uh, prime minister, was, I believe, the head of the socialist international at one point. Yeah. And this is the guy who ushered in uh, you know austerity in Greece. And so um, that experienced – on the one hand, could be very dispiriting and and could lead to a certain form of paralysis, but it sounds like you turned that disappointment into a generative process.
1: Well, I I was just inspired by and excited by the rise of these new left formations. And I mean, like you say, they're trying to do something new and they often were just new. They'd come out of nowhere, you know, or at least they've been small organizations that suddenly had this massive spurt in popularity. Or in the case of Corbyn, you get this kind of weird development within the official party of Social Democracy, where against all the odds and against what everyone had been saying forever, which is that you, the left could never reclaim the Labour Party. That's what I've been saying for years, and, years and, years. and right. suddenly the left kind of essentially takes control of this established organization with amazing resources with roots and trade unions with a kind of uh, a, a sort of national brand recognition with established you know structures and great finances and there was clearly something really exciting and new happening here but also like you say some quite old problems were raising their head again and we were confronting i guess we were confronting problems that in some ways we haven't ever had to confront or not for a long time, you know, because the left have never got anywhere near power. So as I say often
0: on the show, you know, these are good problems to have problems that every, every socialist uh, is just dying to have in his or her lifetime. Uh, You know, you write in this piece, uh, as I, as I alluded to earlier, there's this shift that Leo Panitch and Sam Gendon have called a move from protest to politics. And so you, you elaborate there, uh, it's a shift away from the anti-globalization and anti-war demonstrations from the early aughts, you might say, uh, into uh, uh, this idea that uh, radical left organizing can cohere with a certain kind of electoral campaign and we can take control of the state and change it more directly. And as you raise, this change of emphasis brought novelty in some respects mm-hmm. and others, of course, it represented a return to one of the oldest controversies in socialist thought. and We're going back to the folks that you bring up, Bernstein. Luxembourg, Lenin, Kautsky—all the classics are back in a big way, and uh, so you frame this between the distinction that a lot of folks sort of harken back to, which is that of reform versus revolution.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, how, how does that usually take shape in in these debates?
1: The, you know, those classic debates—we're still operating in their orbit, I guess. You know, we we've not found a way to escape them. That kind of classic confrontation and that way of posing the problem, and while I think it sheds light on the problems that we face. I've always been unhappy with this uh, kind of stark polarisation of reform or revolution, and it, it seems to me that there's there have been other more creative ways of thinking through this problem that have tried to without without sort of um, without seeking to uh, to say there's there's no distinction between reform and revolution without saying that the, that, that this polarity is completely rubbish, and we should just transcend it. There' have been really creative attempts to think about a way of navigating a path from reform and that kind of classic electoral strategy of social democratic social parties to something like revolutionary rupture. So it's a, a kind of a kind of wise reformism that's aware of the structural limits to reform within capitalism. You know, it's the idea that you can't um, take away capitalist power. You know, you can't nationalise uh, capitalist co- companies without them noticing it, no, no matter how right. gradually you do it. You know, they're, so they're going to they're going to realise uh, and they're going to fight back and they exactly. <laughs> so there, there have been this kind of really creative thought in the past, uh, often associated with. I mean, I guess we could call it broadly left Eurocommunism. So, I mean, I think the phenomenon of Eurocommunism itself is really interesting. Uh, the way that those the communist parties in Italy, particularly those of France and Spain, tried to rethink strategy and, and, and to make it relevant to conditions in you know kind of liberal democracy. Right. Often that sort of debate was done within the wider parameters of Stalinist thinking. So, you know, what was going on often with the leaders like. Um, I took the RT, for example, in the PCI uh, yeah. and Berlinger. I not, not in Berlinger I like, but um, they, what they were trying to do was to try to, to try to reframe the PCI, in this case, as a sort of respectable left flank of social democracy to kind of, to kind of situate themselves as, as, as possible coalition partners in a kind of leftist government. And I think they, they were sliding into a kind of classic reformism while maintaining a kind of rhetorical Marxism. Yeah. But within those groups, there were much more interesting thinkers like Polanski and like Engrau and other people. Uh, Gors, he wasn't a Eurocommunist, but within that kind of milieu, and they were trying to think through the way in which you can combine electoral struggle, the way in which you can combine struggles for reform, with trying to build a sort of a counterpart to capital that would, would, would be capable of conducting. A revolutionary rupture, but one which wouldn't just kind of drop out of the sky. You know, there's a kind of semi-Millenarian thinking, I think, yeah. in, in modern Trotskyism, where you just got no idea. There's no there's no concrete account of how day-to-day struggles lead to a situation of dual power. You know, this in their in their kind of sketch of the revolution, it's always really rather mysterious. <laughs> you know, how, it's quite messianic. How these, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah exactly.
0: A, I think to uh, was it. um, Colin Barker's revolutionary rehearsals is sort of the – I think the – the an example of that par excellence. It's it's an analysis of these various sort of upturns and struggle that sort of have this kind of – almost kind of a messianic uh, kind of uh, appeal. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so you, you go to Eurocommunism. Let's talk a little bit of maybe – I mean you've already sort of given a, a nice context of that in terms of what the leadership was. But maybe spell that out for my audience. I mean, I think the the millennials in the house, which comprise, I think, a large portion of my audience, uh, millennials broadly conceived, probably know very little about Eurocommunism. Uh, most of them probably know far more about the Russian Revolution, for God's mm. sakes, than they know about uh, Eurocommunism, which was something that happened. Well, within the lifetime of their parents and, and yeah. some of them you know themselves. Yeah. Uh, it it's a, it's, a, it's a sort of blip in the radar, I screen of, of sort of broader socialist history because at least i would I would wager, and I'd like to get your take on this that that the moment that our theoretical capacities emerged to, to consider something like a euro communist alternative, mm. uh, the global economy had a way of uh, foreclosing those possibilities. In, in the sphere of yeah. global capitalism and political economy. So I don't know if you agree with that take or not, but maybe you kind of spell that out. And you can do that far better than I can. You have much more of that under your belt, I'm sure.
1: Well, I hope so. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, and <laughs> uh, it's it's kind of, um, it's almost like a lost history now. It's uh, It was, I mean, Eurocommunism was a kind of mass movement, if you like. It was the kind of the official line of, particularly the PCI, the the, uh, the Italian Communist Party, which was trying to, think through revolutionary strategy, I mean, they kind of drew on the heritage of Gramsci, you know, and had that kind of grounding in the idea that there was something different in the West than there was in in the East, you know, that the kind of classic October 1917 insurrectionary strategy uh, just just wasn't, it just wasn't applicable in the conditions of uh, post-Second World War Italy. And there is some element of bad faith in this because you've got people like uh, Togliati, a big Stalinist, you know, who are acting on Moscow's orders. It seems. And what Moscow wants, of course, is um, it doesn't want to rock the boat after the Second World War. It wants to it wants to build alliances with the Western capitalist democracies. And the line becomes that communist parties in uh, each different country should develop their own national roads to socialism, which kind of replicates Stalinism. You know, the kind of uh, socialism in one country idea. But also is about diluting anything about communist parties in Italy, in France, in Spain that looked like it would scare off the bourgeoisie. You know, they were essentially trying to build what the what the Italians called the Nazi monopoly front, kind of extension of the popular front, you know, where they'd kind of attract progressive the progressive bourgeoisie and um manufacturing capital. Small businesses in an alliance against finance capital and against the uh, the monopolies, which they said was the you know the driving force of capitalism.
0: Right, and now that was just and just for clarification. Now that was not only just kind of a, a strategic impulse, but it was a direct. If I'm not mistaken, it was a direct response and rebuttal to the more centralized, one size fits all communist. Strategy that prevailed in a lot of the communist parties that were more uh, directed yeah. uh, from, say, Moscow or, or otherwise. Is that, is that right? I mean, say in the PCF in France and and, and otherwise.
1: Well, there's also, there's also a parallel development where these parties increasingly assert their independence from Moscow and they become increasingly critical and slightly mealy mouthed ways, but they become critical of. You know the Stalinist suppression of rights and the various abuses that happen, and they they come out um, with various statements saying they believe in party pluralism. They believe in the defence of and kind of and extension of the kind of civil and political rights that have evolved in Western capitalist democracy. So they're trying to trying to distance themselves from that um, Eastern Bloc model, the kind of monolithic model of of communism. You know the one party state. So what begins as a a kind of a a tactical maneuver within the parameters of what Russia's or the Soviet Union's foreign policy is, you know, not trying to upset the cart and not trying to um, try not to alienate the capitalist powers. It kind of, it spills over and it becomes a sort of genuine attempt to think through how can we build a really democratic socialism, democratic communism in the West? How do we... Draw on the the great kind of cultural democratic achievements in places like you know italy france um, and, and other places, and I think there's um as time goes on it's it's more and more genuine about trying to create uh socialism with a with a human face, and that's where the sort of left wing if you like of the euro communist parties come in who seek to do something different than simply chart a course back to respectable social democracy. They want to retain a sort of ruptural edge to the politics. They want to retain a definitely anti-capitalist edge to those parties' politics mm-hmm. and resist the drift into reformism, the of commerce. So it's a really interesting period. I mean, it doesn't last that long. It's sort of, it's kind of high point is the 1970s. And you're right, there's a clear connection with the, the, the crisis that hits at that point. Yeah, and it kind of disappears. But and of course, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, these, these ideas, the parties that uh, most, all, well, some of them anyway, particularly the PCI, that were coming up with these really creative ideas, they just disband themselves, they disappear and these ideas tend to get lost in history now. But uh, I think there's a lot of um, useful stuff, a lot of resources to, uh, to excavate, if you like, from the period.
0: I mean, there's a tremendous parallel now that that occurs to me
1: here. I mean, you, you
0: don't you don't talk explicitly about Eurocommunism in your essay in your article, which is why I wanted to bring it out. Folks can and absolutely must read this article. Just 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 read it, people. It's uh it's it's really good. I'm not just flattering my guest. If I had the time and the wherewithal and the abilities. Uh, I, you know, I myself oh, – this is very similar to the kind of strategic orientation, the historical kind of synthesis that I would have come up with and, and most of the people I think who I, I consider you know, worthwhile political thinkers would have come up with. So it's great to see that there are people who are seeing the same dynamics and, of course, you use your talents to put that to paper. Pe- people have to read this thing. I mean this is a mm-hmm. manifesto for the Dead Punnett Society as far as I'm concerned. I mean, really. I mean, it's. I mean, but there's something that's it's 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 vindicating as well. I mean, it's validating. I think that for my audience and for myself and perhaps even for you that that, that these are problems that a lot of people are noticing in their own particular unique contexts that yeah, they have a yeah. general a generalizability uh, to them in a sense that we can all sort of uh, adopt. So, but what you do talk about in your piece more explicitly is Syriza, and it seems to me that there's a similarity there between the experience of Syriza in Greece and Eurocommunism. Insofar as each are oftentimes held up as cautionary tales as to what happens when you stray too far from so called revolutionary principles. yeah,
1: absolutely. Or the
0: or the Leninist revolutionary strategy of, of dual power, the dictatorship of the proletariat, and they are held up as uh, you know, uh, failures of so-called reformism. As as I mentioned off air, I'm going to have an episode on Syriza. I'm gonna bring on someone who studies this explicitly. Uh, at some point, there are a lot of fantastic people out there. This won't be that episode, but we will have to talk about Syriza, obviously, to get to some of these arguments. So we'll have to cover it kind of uh, mm. uh, briefly. But talk to me a little bit about Syriza and how it illustrates some of your concerns.
1: Well, I think there's a definite tendency now for what we might, I mean, this, this, I'm using the term perhaps slightly crudely, but, you know, the Leninist critique, which kind of feels itself vindicated by the, the degeneration of, Syriza in, in power and, you know, that kind of reinforces the narrative that the kind of original sin of reformism is the attempt to utilise the structures of the capitalist state. You know, once once you enter it and you, and you try to do anything beyond more than making propaganda from within those structures to address the sort of masses outside then you'll become incorporated by those institutions and by capitalism. And um, what happened to Syriza is just one more example of this, this remorseless logic working itself out. You know, they were kind of doomed from the start. That the moment that Syriza announced its intentions for a government of the left, um, and certainly when it actually won the election, then it was doomed to follow this path into, you know, some disappointment and then end up um, simply implementing austerity in a slightly, slightly nicer way. Than um, you know, New Democracy have been doing it before, but it seems that seems to me I'm I'm just not happy with that kind of story. It's it's just too. There's, I don't think there was anything inevitable about the trajectory of Syriza in power. What I think is that the likelihood of failure was always very high. I think the likelihood of um, not being able to, you know, surpass or overthrow capitalism is always very high. Whatever strategy you take, you know, because yeah. face it who has ever done it perhaps that's perhaps one or two instances in history and even then they weren't that successful in the end.
0: you know they weren't happy stories i have to cite here uh nathan robinson who is uh, he's a Brit. he's over here in the u.s he started a magazine called current affairs and i was listening to him he's a friend of the show and i was listening to another podcast and they asked him and they said well you know he's are talking about the left and, and and prospects and they said well you know uh, what do you think of the left sort of prospects here and he said well you know our prospects are always dim we represent those in society who don't have power as 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 it's defined in capitalism now we have a certain other kinds of power right yeah. but it's not a power that's organized by capital uh, it's sort of disorganized by capital so yeah just m- 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 uh, you know echoing nathan's uh, sort of claim there it's like well hell yeah of course it's difficult uh, it's it's uh, we're we're the ones representing those who don't have the power so i i hear you there that that yeah. You, you write uh, elsewhere here that, um, you know, th- there are folks who sort of sat back and abstained in the KKE and uh, Antarsia, two Marxist communists, vaguely uh, anarchist, in some senses, formations who refused to take part in uh, the series electoral coalition. And they sort of sat back and waiting for it to fail
1: so they could say, I told you so. exactly And I think that, um, there was never a clear, concrete alternative. So groups like Antasia, I mean, brilliant as far as I know, brilliant activists in Greece, and, you know, uh, re- really hard fighters. And nothing, you know, you can only admire people who were, who were campaigning uh, for a socialist alternative there. But in terms of their strategy, um, I just don't think they had one. I don't think they had one other than to say that Syriza was going to fail because reformism always failed. But um, there was no clear sense of how they could actually address the question of power. And I think what what Syriza did, and which was so impressive, is that they unflinchingly addressed the question of power. You know, they, they, they sort of said, we need to take power. We need to take government power. They, they at least started to, to try to work out how to build a movement that would take power and then see what it could do from then on. Because the alternative was just to kind of give up from the start. You know, the alternative was a kind of faux radicalism where you say, well, we can't take power because we'll be incorporated. But that if you don't if you don't even start to address the question of government power, taking political power, you'll just kind of marginalize yourself. You know, you're 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 doomed to fail yourself too. So I think that the key moment there was when it was Tsipras who came up with that slogan for a government of the left and kind of grasped the necessity that's right. Of taking power. And that's, I mean, the key thing there was it, it actually galvanized the movement. You know, this was the moment when Syriza really started to look like a government in waiting, a power power against austerity in waiting. And uh, I think what they grasped was something that should be really obvious, but often isn't on the left, which is that it's really, really hard to see, really hard to see how any real mass radicalization, any any kind of mobilization of working class people behind left wing ideas, how that won't at first at least take an electoral expression, how that won't lead to involve the kind of electoral rise of a party which has its eyes on um on power, has its eyes on on taking um forming a government within the structure of the capitalist state. And I think that we just have to we have to accept that. We have to Realise that that's the that's the pattern historically. When there are upsurges of of left wing ideas in established capitalist democracies, time after time after time, they're expressed in the form of the rise of um, of, of an electoral party. And so, I think we need to work with that dynamic and, and and not sort of polemicize about it or step aside from it, but try to find a way in which we can draw out the kind of implicit radicalism at work. You know How, how, can, we, how can we push these movements beyond the usual social democratic reformism that leads to disappointment? Uh, how can we come up with a, a way of struggling that takes on a kind of dynamic logic um, that, that pushes people beyond those limits, that starts to probe the limits of capitalism and starts to find ways through experimentation, through building counter power outside the state as much as within it, but ways of actually taking that moving forward. Right, right. It's worth noting uh, August Nymt is
0: a Marxist uh, scholar here in the United United States. He is, uh, although I I have some differences with August's kind of take on this, but it's worth noting. I mean, even though there are differences here, he's written extensively on Marx and Engels' own take about the importance of electoral politics and electoral Mm -hmm. strategy. And they they famously wrote that, uh, you know, uh, workers' parties should engage in elections uh, to sort of take the temperature of the class struggle in that particular national, you know, formation. And uh, August Nims has also recently released a book uh, called Lenin's Electoral Strategy. And Lenin had a, a similar uh, formulation, of course, uh, prior to the October Revolution. So you know, it's, it's to say that there, th- this isn't a. A revisionist, necessarily a revisionist Marxist approach, right? This no, goes back right. to the, the 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 beginning. Not to say that that in and of itself, right? That well, Marx said so, so it had to be true. Like we don't want to pull that move. We don't want to make that move either. But but it's not a revisionist, yeah, yeah, a revisionist yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. argument in any in any stretch.
1: No, there are those resources even within kind of classical Leninism and Bolshevik thought. I mean, another really interesting development was the um, the theory of the United Front and the Workers' Government which uh, the Comintern had as its policy, I think it's was um, the Fourth Congress in 1922. What had happened there was, and this, this goes against the usual narrative from the kind of modern-day Leninist position, you know, which is that Lenin and Trotsky said you need to maintain absolute independence from the capitalist state, you shouldn't seek to work within those institutions. And what the Comintern was saying in 1922, you know, Lenin's still alive, Trotsky's still very much active, and so on and so on. Was that uh, after the kind of ebbing of the revolutionary wave in in Europe after in, in the early nineteen twenties, they looked around and realised there there were no Soviets, you know, in Germany, in France, in Britain, and so on. And what had happened was a kind of renewed hegemony of, of reformism, and their their new tactic was to sort of you know, in contra distinction to the kind of ultra left turn, um, where you know, sort of uh, social democrats were denounced as as this and that. Was to say that we need to work uh, with the working class as they are, and we need to take up immediate demands. And this is where the idea of transitional demands come from you know, that we take up the immediate needs and interests of the working class and we press them forward. And the logical extension of this is if you want to form, if you want to create reforms to improve the immediate conditions of the working class, and there's no imminent prospect of a sort of revolutionary overthrow in a situation of dual power, what do you need? Well, you need some kind of political instrument to carry these reforms out. So you need a government. You need what they call a workers' government. And so there was different iterations of what the workers' government meant, and it was a bit vague. But some thinkers like Karl Radek, Clara Zetkin, were quite clear that the KPD should aim to take um, power electorally or be part of a coalition to introduce transitional reforms and their, their their idea was that as long as this was aimed at radicalising a mass movement outside the state and empowering workers, you know, beyond the kind of elitist machinations within the state structure itself, that this was a perfectly legitimate, in fact, the only feasible way of moving towards a revolutionary rupture. In fact, I think Karl Radek, you know, the Bolsheviks, said that this was, in in the conditions of the time, this was the only feasible way of moving towards what he called the dictatorship of the proletariat. You know, communist parties had to get elected to power (laughs) uh, and implement reforms through the capitalist state. So there are these sort of lost histories that often people don't know about or forget about. Um, And Leninism isn't quite often, you know, what people say it was it's much more it's much more it's much more interesting because <laughs> right, for those i mean is.
0: just just to lay down some you know for those who who don't uh have the history under their belt of the kind of a common turn and the margin the more marginal characters a, a carl raddick Ooh. you know i mean let's let's just say he was not carl raddick was not an an unorthodox member of the common turn <laughs> victor Serge, uh famous uh you know infamous uh a guy who who wrote quite a bit uh, on uh, that experience, uh, who was uh, more of a kind of an anarchist, but very sympathetic to the Bolsheviks. In the common turn, uh, you know, sort of portrayed Radik as a as a as a bureaucrat and an apparatchik. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so now, whether whether or not that's true or fair, I mean, that's just to say that we, what you're pointing to there is not uh, a kind of a you know alternative. To the history of you know the Bolsheviks and, and the Common Turn and, yeah. and the Communist International, it's something that runs very—it's directly through uh, the course. If we seem to be a little uncharitable to Leninists or Leninism or that legacy, suffice it to say that there there is a, there is a certain kind of alternative yeah. narrative. You yourself might not agree with what we say next about non-reformist reforms and Corbyn and all the rest of it, but uh, yeah, there's, uh,
1: there's, Leninism was never as monolithic as the kind of latter-day. The beginnings of Lenin seem to, you know, seem to assume it was much more creative, and you know, this was the the idea of the workers' government implementing transitional demands, transitional reforms. This was official policy for the for the Comintern approved by Moscow uh, in the early nineteen twenties, and it only came to a halt because soon after this Lenin dies and Stalin die takes over, and this whole stuff is just lost. Um, yeah. So yeah. yeah.
0: This is crucial stuff. And like I said, I love this because this isn't stuff that you're able to get into directly in your piece with the kind of uh, narrative. I mean, so, I mean, this is good because I'm oftentimes accused by folks who are more in line with the uh, quote unquote Leninist political strategy, dual power, dictatorship of the proletariat, and all of that. There are some formations here in the United States that adhere much more closely to that. Socialist Alternative is one of them that has a much more nuanced, I think, electoral strategy, but they are nonetheless advocates ultimately of dual power. The ISO, of course, is an affiliate uh, or uh, once was an affiliate of the British SWP who has a very similar kind of Trotskyist-Leninist kind of uh, orientation. So so we're not being totally unfair here. We're resuscitating, revivifying a certain kind of uh, lost history. Let's go into the specifics of the article piece by piece sure. here. You write in the very beginning. We're going to backtrack here. We covered a lot of really fantastic context, and now we're going to lay out the strategic debate and your particular intervention is, is the, the kind of strategy that you'd like to put forward. Uh, you write here, starting with Leninism, you write here, the trouble with Leninist critique, however, is that no matter how opposite its diagnosis of the constraints imposed by series parliamentary statism. It remained unable to offer a credible concrete alternative, and the political groups that cleaved to the strategic orientation, such as in Tarsia, were largely bypassed, winning nothing remotely close to the degree of support that series uh, was able to gather. And so uh, you talked a little bit about the paralysis that is sort of implicit in the Leninist position of refusing to engage in electoral or state
1: uh, policies. Yeah, there's a really – really great book it's very long it's really great uh, by a guy called donald sassoon who wrote uh, 100 years of socialism massive book but one of the it's almost like an aside in there but I, it really struck me one of the things he said was that the socialist left has never been able to bridge the gap between what he calls the end state you know kind of vision of what we want socialism and the immediate sort of demands of the present and yeah. socialists tend to get caught at Either ends of this pole, and I thought about this. They uh, get stuck there. You know, you get the people who kind of get immersed in the immediate demands and who get incorporated into the system because they, you know, they're, they're implementing reforms and they find themselves drawn into this uh, remorseless logic of once you take over, uh, you know, once you're once you're in government, you become responsible for a, for a capitalist economy. And you start to manage that economy on its own terms, because if you don't, you know, what do you get? Economic crisis, you get capital flight, and you've got all the kind of problems that, that assail leftist parties in power. On the other hand, you've got the revolutionaries who go in for a kind of, um, slightly caricatured here, but kind of basically a kind of purist line who say, well, we're not going to dirty our hands with, uh, you know, trying to implement reforms via the state. What we're going to do is we're going to hold out for um, the uh, the insurrection. And that'll solve all our problems, right? And we can avoid the kind, of, the, the kind of grubby compromises that the reformists have to do. And yet what you end up with there is a sort of, in the end of the day, a kind of, uh, like you said, a messianism. You know, you're waiting for this kind of eruption from, from nowhere, but w- which never quite emerges. And so you get this sort of a kind of bad faith on both ends of these poles. You've got the reformists who are forever putting off the day at which they they challenge capitalism, you know, so socialism is relegated to a, a sort of infinitely, you know, to a horizon that never comes. Um, the, the ultimate goal is kicked into the long grass. On the other hand, you have the the, the kind of crudely the Leninist reformists, uh, sorry, a revolutionary left, who are always also waiting for something that never comes to. You know, there's always already the revolution is kind of just around the corner, but it's never quite here. And they can never quite make you know what's what's the connection between the day to day struggles, paper sales, you know, building marches, (laughs) making speeches. What how how do you move from that to a situation of dual power and insurrection? Is a kind of that very big question is always glossed over. Oh, you, <laughs> yeah. sell more, you sell more papers that's what you i do. guess so you, you, and i say this with love as, as, yeah.
0: as listeners will know i mean i i, I was there I, I used to sell papers i hawked them and, and i talked to people and you just you i don't know you sell more passionately i tried that um it didn't get us anywhere. But anyway, I mean, hey, somebody's got to do it, right? Well, sure, you know. You know I don't th- want to knock, I, don't knock no, no, I, th-
1: I, think, I think revolutionary parties perform yeah. a really, really useful job. I mean, you know, these people are often yeah. the workhorses of the movement, are the ones who build the marches, are the ones, who, you know. So That's I don't right. mean to dismiss these groups, but I think strategically, I don't think they really have much sense concretely of how they envisage a revolution happening today. You know, how it happened. It's, it's never right. started. I
0: think one thing that your, your piece points to here is... is um, and of course, you rightly mentioned that you you necessarily caricature each of these positions, right? Because the reform yeah. versus revolution is in itself an abstraction; it's a caricature yeah. of of each uh, in order to set it against one another. But so, you know, what what happens more often? So is is, is that what happens? Is that these revolutionary, you know, quasi-Leninist grouplets end up actually engaged in what are reformist struggles yeah. With themselves? Yeah,
1: absolutely. This is something that's. Um Richard Seymour, and you may have, uh, you may not know of, he runs a blog called Leninology, really, really good. Uh, and I, he argues... I, I wager
0: most of my audience would know who he is over here. He's, okay. he's got a pretty, pretty good name recognition in the States. Oh, a-
1: excellent. Yeah, he's an indispensable read. And one of the things he, he argued was uh, precisely this, and he actually really annoyed a lot of people when he said this, which is that that revolutionary or socialists, there's not really that much to distinguish them in terms of their kind of day-to-day practice from reformists. They're not really doing anything very different. For all intents and purposes, his phrase was, we're all reformists now, you know, Um, because, and it's almost like, and this is something that that Panagiotis Sotiris has argued too, a Greek um, sort of critic of Syriza, but one of the things he says, which I think is, is quite right, is that often in practice, The sort of revolutionary status of revolutionary groups is fundamentally it's a rhetorical gesture. You know, it's it's a kind of, uh, it's a a bit of branding. It's it's what differentiates us from those reformists. But in practice, in terms of the way they operate, there's not a great deal of difference. They're campaigning for the same sorts of things in the same sorts of movements as reformists. And so I have a suspicion that um, revolutionaries are often rhetorically revolutionary. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, not, right, really, it's not really its a concrete right. thing about
0: them. Well, this is what we call here uh, in, in the United States a virtue signaling. Mm. And that, that doesn't have a very kind, uh, that's not a very charitable way of uh, de- de- describing someone. I think Panagiotis uh, Sotiris here has it better as you write and as you mention and as you write in your piece. In fact, really, this is about identity, right? He says, indeed, Panagiotis further suggests that this abstract invocation of revolutionary intent tends to function more in terms of identity rather than practice yeah. you know and the, the concrete substance of revolutionary strategy remains at best only vaguely defined now that's not to say that these people don't believe it i mean I, I I know for a fact they believe it i mean they're very very passionate yeah. some of the most some of the most uh, passionate people about uh, you know social and radical political and economic change out there that i think it's a, it's a, it's tragic however i at least in my estimation and yours that their strategic orientation would some would in a sense prevent their radical and passionate intentions from from becoming a reality and that's precisely you right, because they don't have the right strategic field of vision which as the listeners of my show will know is provided by neo-marxian state theory in a sense as as you you sort of uh, sum up throughout the rest of your piece these theoretical um orientations these theoretical frameworks are literally our eyes it's, it's, it's our eyes are our, our way of seeing the world and the various contradictory and dialectical dynamics in the world so that we know how to act in a strategic way mm-hmm. and so the first the first one that you lay out here is that my audience should be fairly familiar with this is polantis the way that he conceptualizes the state as a condensation of class struggle and um, a terrain on which classes and class fractions do their work. So, spell that out for us. Um, that's something I said, you know, folks who listen to my state theory series will have uh, something, uh, you will know quite a bit about that. If you haven't listened to the state theory series, go back and check it out after this episode. It'll be
1: very relevant. What does Polansis mean to you? Well, I think theory, his later theory of the state, as spelled out, particularly in State Power Socialism, his last book before he died. 1978, I think it was published, but that's, that right. for me is when he, he comes out with an approach to capitalist state power, which I think remains unsurpassed. You know, it's it's the kind of still the cutting edge, for me, Marxist theory of the state. And he wants to, well, he, he argues basically that we should think of the state in terms analogous to Marx's um, conceptualization of capital. You know, so it's not, it's not a thing it's a social relation um the, the state is not a thing it's not a it's not, a, it's, not a, it's not a kind of concrete thing although it has a, a what he calls an institutional materiality it has concrete reality um, it has institutional form but it's not a monolithic block it's um it's it's, it's, it's also a field of uh, of, uh, of of power where various social forces kind of constantly modify it and, uh, and the balance of class forces is is reflected and sort of refracted via the state, which produces a really, really sophisticated account of of the state and gets beyond the sort of crude, for me, the crude formulations of, of the state, which I think tend to be rooted in Lenin's state and revolution, where Lenin tends to... Assert that once you identify the core function of the capitalist state, which is to you know to reproduce capitalist power, that's pretty much all you need to know about the state. And there's nothing more to it than that. You know, the the only thing that remains to do is to surround it and smash it and replace it with a workers' state. You know, because it's essentially absolutely bourgeois. It's just uh, simply draws from that famous uh, saying from Engels that the state is. You know, an organ for the suppression of one class, repression of one class by another. Clearly, that's, there's, there's, that's true. There's a a truth there, but it's not, it's not the entire picture. And I think that Philanthus gets beyond that in an interesting way. And the way he gets beyond it opens up a really interesting, sophisticated set of possibilities about how to orient socialist strategy in advanced capitalist democracies, you know. And uh, right. that's what he develops in that kind of famous or even infamous last chapter of State Power Socialism where he starts to set out this vision of a kind of articulated process of of, of um, getting people elected within the state to sort of, you know, to build uh, centres of power within state institutions, not, not just at national levels but at local levels in local government in municipal forms and so on, to modify the institutional materiality of the state and sort of disrupt and isolate bourgeois power centers and things like
0: this. Right. So you, you mentioned in your piece, just to backtrack here, just so we don't gloss over this, because I've really, I really appreciated this because it, it, it speaks to the necessity of the kind of field of struggle that Pulancis lays out. One of the ways that folks often sidestep this debate altogether is just a point to, as you'd mentioned, smashing the state. You have to smash the state yeah. uh, with a dual power framework, where whereas the workers have their own sort of uh, governmental apparatus and power center outside of the capitalist state. And then you would in, you would institute at what, what's often called by Marx and others, the dictatorship of the proletariat. You point here, you write, as Nikos Palantzis points out, these phrases were for Marx and Engels, at most signposts, which indicate problems yeah. – uh, those being you know, the class nature of the state, the necessity of a stage of transition towards the process of the state's withering. But he writes, but these signposts have since become transformed in Marxist orthodoxy into apparently definitive answers in themselves to those same problems. And so what were initially set out by Marx and Engels as signposts, as, as certain kind of contradictions that should, that should draw our critical attention, yes, exactly. have become answers in and of themselves, yeah. which are just – which are necessary, but I mean, these signposts are necessary but insufficient, and so you seem to be arguing that Polanski can give us
1: better answers yeah.
0: to these to these uh, signposts, yes, these does. dilemmas that are pointed to in the classical
1: uh, Marxian. Yeah, religion. absolutely. So, yeah, yes. it's, it's like, like you say. So, in the orthodoxy, those phrases, in the state" and the tension of the proletariat, and it's almost like for um, you know the kind of uh, that kind of orthodox Leninists uh, revolutionary left, these are the answers. You know, the, these 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 things were solved. By Marx and Lenin, this is what we have got to do. But of course, they're not answers. They're like you say, signposts. They're they're indicating problems that we need to analyse, and we can only analyse them concretely, you know, in in the conjunction that we're in, and with the full kind of vision of, of the complexity of the institutional forms and the you know uh, organisational forms before us. And I think what 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 tries to do is to think: what, what does it actually mean? to smash the state? What, is it, what does it mean to, um, to, to to transform political power from something which tends to embed and reproduce bourgeois domination to one which would actually embed and reproduce working-class domination with a view towards the kind of eventual abolition of, of class itself? What would the dictatorship of the proletariat look like? And for me, I think... Where Polantis is, is most impressive on strategy is not actually in the last chapter of State Power Socialism, which I think is is good, but it's it's not it's it's got problems. A more interesting discussion actually comes out in his uh, debate with uh, Henri Weber, uh, who I think was a militant in the, the French uh, Trotskyist group in the seventies, uh, and it's in the Polantis reader. I forget what the title of the essay is now, but there's a really really interesting debates slash discussion between those two where Polansis fills out in a bit more detail what he's what he's talking about
0: right it's one of the final chapters it's called the state and the transition to socialism Mm, just as as an aside you you mentioned that was in the uh, collection called the Polansis reader Marxism law and the state it's collected by James Martin Uh, I I recommend that to everyone everyone on my show who reaches out to me and said I really liked your state theory series what do I read on Polansis that's the first thing I throw out there and I, I have some specific essays that I recommend. You know, the, the interviews are fantastic. But I would even say even above and beyond state power socialism, in a sense, because it gives you a broader sort of view of what. So anybody who wants to read up on this, check that out. I did, don't mean to interrupt you, but that's no, an essential no, no. uh, collection. So you're talking about his interview with uh, uh,
1: Henri Weber. Yeah. One of the things, I and mean, it's a really broad-ranging interview. I think, I think actually Palance runs rings around, around Weber, actually. But one of the the really interesting directions of Polanski's argument is this this idea that he, he wants to retain the idea of rupture. So Polanski is often dismissed as I think that um, Colin Barker does this that he just becomes a reformist, right? But he doesn't. Well, he's a weenie, right?
0: It's easy to paint Palancis as a guy who just doesn't have the stomach yeah. for what it takes yeah, to be right. a real Marxist. That's right. Yeah, right. It's, yeah, it's,
1: yeah. So, but it's just not true. He, he talks about ruptures. He talks about revolutionary breaks. He says that, uh, that what he what he kind of uh, slightly, slightly kind of provocatively calls his revolutionary road to democratic socialism, just to kind of wind up, <laughs> to, to wind up on <laughs> I think it's good. The phrase I'm trying to use. He talks about that yeah. this road. Can't be a gradualist road. It's not. It's not going to be tranquil. It's got to, on the contrary, incorporate a stage of real breaks. Quoting the climax of which, and there has to be one, is reached when the relationship of forces on the strategic terrain of the state swings over to the side of the popular masses. But what he's trying to get at there, I think, is, uh, and he fills this out a bit, is that he he simply cannot imagine. And I think he's right that a, that a kind of revolutionary confrontation would mean a confrontation between the masses outside the state versus the states on block, you know, uh, the, the fortress state versus them. In fact, the break is going to pass through the state itself. What it's going to, what's going to happen, Polansis suggests, is that there will be a kind of polarisation within the state apparatus themselves too. And so we come up with a much more kind of complex and messy conception of what a revolution would look like, which I just think is a much more, it's just much more intuitively realistic. I mean, this this seems to me, I can't see anything other than this happening if there was ever to be this kind of this kind of break. So it seems like he's saying that the election of uh what we might call a left government is essential to sort of work away within the state while also seeking to work in tandem with a movement outside the state. Uh in a kind of you know, a kind of organic dialectical relationship between the two where the reforms that are a left government, or we might also call it a workers' government. You know, going back to the Fourth uh, Congress of the Communist seeks to introduce transitional or structural reforms. He doesn't use that term, but that's what he's talking about. In order to empower people outside the states, in order to kind of radicalise people and to build up a sort of to build up an institutionalised form of class power in things like you know workers' councils and various forms of direct democracy, and in so doing not just transfer power from the central state to a more devolved sort of set of institutions. And that's what he's, I think that's what he's, what he's doing there, is he's coming up with a much more complex idea of what the withering of the state looks like. You know, so it's about a kind of decentralisation of power. But also, in, do, in so doing, you build up a sort of counter power outside of the state that can force those representatives on to hold true to their promises, to, to keep them going, to stop them capitulating and also to build up a counterpower against capital itself that can actually take on you know this the, in some ways the kind of it, but its structural power of capital to to sabotage and subvert uh, left wing reforms right right
0: that's i mean that, that's it's a very crucial strategic orientation let's spell out you know this kind of you, so you you mentioned just to go back you mentioned this kind of inside outside approach yeah. so this inside uh, the electoral state the capitalist state electoral uh, you know, uh, liberal democratic uh, institutions of government and outside, which is to remain, you know, push, keep pressure. I mean, as we talked, we opened the show with this. I think it was very fortuitous and, and somewhat intentional in that you mentioned that the leadership of your union was uh, was was trying to capitulate. Now, let's just assume for a moment, and it's, this is probably a fair assumption. Let's just a- assume for a moment that the leadership of your union is not entirely comprised of opportunistic bastards. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's assume it, it isn't, for a moment. It isn't. Good Much like Alexi Tsipras. Yeah, I mean, as yeah. I, I, it, easy it is, I think, uh, to hate that guy d- this, these days. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's presume, you know, let's give him some credit that uh, they never would have pursued this strategy for seeking government had it not been for his invocation Absolutely. back in t- uh, 2012 at the party conference. Yeah. And so, you know, let's just assume that these people are well-intentioned, good-faith actors there are nonetheless going to be some institutional and structural constraints that are placed upon them. And so that that changes their cal- calculus and you need to have people outside of the leadership structure to maintain the, sh- the uh, you know, the pressure on these types of uh, folks that inside outside approach, I think is totally indispensable mm-hmm. in the way that you lay it out. Let's move on. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to this uh, in the B side here later on, but let's move on to Andre Gord's and his, his contribution. Let's yeah. cover that for about uh, let's just, sort of gloss over that because i want to return okay. to that on the b side sure. here for my patrons and speak more explicitly about what that meant in greece and what that means for a corbyn labor party government or even say like a sanders movement here in
1: in the united states well yeah andre gorse I, as far as i know originated no he didn't that's not sure i was going to say he originated the term structural reforms it was actually totally pci but but Andre Goss gives it the kind of uh, inflection, the content that um, we associate the concept with now is kind of, the, you know, the, the kind of godfather of structural reform. And he's talking about something not a million miles away from Polansus. He was writing a really interesting conjuncture uh, just after the May sixty eight, you know, student uprising, workers' uprising in Paris. And was trying to think through how the demands of those protesters might actually be taken forward. Um, at the, at the time, it didn't, it didn't look unlikely that the goal would fall the French, um, the French leader and a, a provisional government of the left would, would, would come to power and would sort of be driven forward by protesters in the street. And he's trying to think through, you know, what can, what would happen? What would this dialectic between a mass movement and a state, a, a radical kind of government look like? And so he develops this idea of the of structural reform and tries to think through what would what would what he calls a not necessarily reformist reform? Not the most catchy terms. What 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 would be different from a what he calls a reformist reform? Now, what, what would a radical reform look like, and how would it be how would it be different from the usual social democratic reform? And what he says is that there are basic characteristics of non-reformist reforms or or structural reforms, mm-hmm. and the one thing that he he stresses is that. These reforms need to be implemented in a way that disrupt the the equilibrium of capitalism. So they shouldn't be inserted in a way that um, simply fits in quite nicely with capitalist accumulation. They should aim to disrupt that that kind of smooth functioning and in so doing uh, necessitate further reforms. You know, because if when you you start to disrupt the system's equilibrium, you, you need to deal with the effects of that disruption. And it was a way of of coming up with a a kind of strategy for a sort of radicalizing dynamic of almost like permanent revolution. You know, you sort of start with a series of immediate demands that come out of people's everyday needs, housing, jobs, whatever. Things that aren't necessarily in themselves revolutionary, but the way in which you you, uh, implement them sort of necessitates further reforms that uh, and builds up this uh, this kind of cumulative dynamic which moves towards more radical conclusions and he says that the key thing here is to and the kind of um, the characteristic of a structural reform is that they must they must empower the popular movement so it must be about building workers power it's got to be about increasing the democratic capacities of the people so the examples he gives is a bit vague about what he means, but the, the few examples he gives are things like workers' control, nationalizing industry under workers' control, socializing the investment function. So things like you know taking over banks and and channeling investment uh, into socially useful production, workers' alternative plans for production. So you know encouraging workers in uh, in factories and offices and so on to think about how they might control the production process, the work process, uh, and how they might. Sort of repurpose what they do to align it with social needs and also to encourage their own flourishing as people you know to get rid of boring jobs to to give them some sort of interest in what they do to utilize their full capacities and skills and he thinks that this process builds up kind of democratic capacities of workers in such a way that they get a taste for emancipation and they start demanding more, so they put pressure on their leaders to push this process forward, and the more they do this. The more that they come into conflict with the with business confidence, with the structural power of capital, the more they'll come up with problems like capital flight, with things like disinvestment, like lockouts. And there's no guarantee that things will go in this direction, but he hopes that this could, with the right sort of leadership, contribute to that escalating dynamic of radicalisation. So, you know, how do we react to capital flight? Well, we you know, we nationalise the banks or we put in capital controls. What do we do about lockouts? Well, we allow workers to take over their own workplace and run themselves, you know. So it's a way of moving from a situation in which workers are not revolutionary, in which they do have a kind of social democratic consciousness. And and through this kind of logic of the unfolding of events, they kind of educate themselves as a kind of pedagogical process where they learn about the, the limits of capitalism. They learn about class power and they start to develop their own consciousness and their own sort of, you know, kind of psychological, but also concrete um, capacities to start fighting back. It fits really nicely with Palancis. And um, this this is in Gortz's, um, he wrote a book uh, called Strategy for Labour. And also there's a a really good essay uh, called Reform and Revolution in a book he wrote called Socialism and Revolution. They're they're, um, late 60s, early 70s. Um, So he was writing at a time... A little bit before Poulencet, but um, they were on the same wavelength. And, you know, I think this is, again, it's kind of like these are resources that have slightly been lost a little. And I'd like to see them get resurrected because they kind of speak to us today. You know, they're talking about exactly the same sorts of things that we're the same problems that we're facing today.
0: Well said. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. We're trying to bring these back to life. You know, you cited quoting you here and, and, and to sum this up here, you you cite Eric Olin Wright, who mm. was active in his early days, uh, writing around state theory and such in those times. Wright says the strategy of structural reform pivots uh, around less about questions less about how to make a revolution. Yeah. And rather about how to create the social conditions within which we can know how to make a revolution. Yeah, and so it's about. I mean, people talk about the conditions of possibility. That's kind. Of, as uh, Polanski actually has a funny remark. I believe it's with his uh, interview with Weber, if I'm not mistaken. And he has a funny remark about, yeah, you know, Marx is uh, whatever. We're all particularly Althusserians, yeah. always talking about the conditions of possibility. And you know, he, I mean, basically, ba- you know, says, you know, uh, fuck that, right? Like we need to, <laughs> like we need to talk more concretely. But this is, really is about. Uh, they, they're creating uh, conscientiously in an eminent sort of organic way, creating the conditions of possibility yeah. for, for the, for the struggle yeah. towards yeah. socialism in a way that, you know, it's an end run around the way that plants sort of says these conditions of possibility is always kind of a throwaway away uh, in Marxian orthodoxy. In some senses, they're trying to bring, bring this to life as a, as a kind of a, a structural roadmap if you will exactly. I mean, there is no roadmap that would be too easy yeah. right and as you as you say rightly we can never really know how these structural reforms will turn out in a sense i mean this is my wager and i've, I've said this in conversation with uh, some friends of mine and that how do you know what is or isn't a non-reformist reform and we'll get to this here in a moment on the b side more explicitly but i mean my wager is that you only sort of know that after the fact
1: i think you're and it depends on the it depends on the balance of forces, depends on the conjuncture. You know, uh, I think as Gore says, this explicitly in fact that you you can't you can't come up with a list of structural reforms that are kind of eternally true. It depends, or you know, what speaks to people? What are people actually demanding? What uh, can capitalism afford at, the, at this particular time? Um, so it's more um, it's a kind of strategic orientation rather than a list of reforms that are by definition revolutionary there's
0: no such thing right i think uh, the socialist movement worldwide is cohering around a very principled set of demands and and aims uh, that are you know both generalizable across the world uh, the capitalist world as well as specific to their national context Mm. for example here in the u.s we have to advocate for a thing called medicare for all because we don't have a national health service um, and of course, you have a national health service, but you're working to save it. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. I mean, th- these are, you know, these are specific right. contexts, and these yeah. are all in, in and of themselves sort yeah. of non-reformist reforms. Yeah. But so what we have is a nice laundry list of aims and demands. I mean, this is important, but what I fear is that this operates all too often just as kind of a, a as, as just that as a laundry list. Is oh, what, to be a socialist means that you advocate for X, Y, and Z, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to saying. Well, we advocate for Medicare for all because we see it as a non-reformist reform. it uh, it it, it uh, enhances workers' power. Yeah. it doesn't uh, tie the worker yeah. uh, to his or her boss for health care. and it opens up the possibility for longer strike acts exactly. uh, you know, it's, so, it, it it expands and enhances the capacities yeah. of the working class
1: movement. It it brings concrete benefits in the here and now to workers. You know, it, it does that. These reforms do actually improve people's lives, but they also open up the possibility for more reforms. They also increase people's confidence. They kind of, you know, they they might um, empower people in different ways, uh, and that, that's important. I think people often lose. Um, I think people often lose the, the the sense of how important it is actually, because socialists are in the business, after all, of, in, in, in trying to make people's lives better. You know, we're not in the business of creating utopia. I think there's a thing called Andrew Colley I really like, uh, who wrote a book called Socialist Reason. He tries to rehabilitate the the idea of scientific socialism. It's called itself a bad name, but I don't go with the, the entire argument, but one of his key points is, I think it's absolutely right, is that, socialists are not in the business of creating socialism you know we're, we're not we're not sort of um, saying what exists is wrong and we're comparing it to some kind of transcendent, you know kind of um, utopia that we're trying to realize we're not trying to realize socialism um, because that's utopia what we're trying to do is we're trying to improve conditions in the here and now it's just that with the marxist analysis this tells you that there will be certain limits to how far we can go you know, once you you try to improve workers' lives beyond a certain point, once you try to empower them, once you try to remove the worst forms of exploitation and so on, you'll start to run up against class power. So his idea is that we're, we're in the business of acting on behalf of the poor, the oppressed, and seeking to sort of channel their immediate demands to make their lives better. But we've also got this strategic sense, which is that once we push this beyond a certain point, all hell will break loose. You know, we'll come up against the structural power of capital. And the only uh, option at that point is to either retreat or to go forward. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a really useful way of thinking about things. It's a, it's a very kind of materialist way of thinking about things as, a, as opposed to a kind of abstract, utopian, liberal sense of, you know, you, you first we, we think about this, uh, we design this wonderful utopia that we want to realise. Um, and then we look at how current society doesn't measure up to it. We're not doing that. We're looking at what's wrong with society at the moment, how might it be different, uh, how do the resources and capacities that we're, we already have mean that we could actually get rid of these problems. There's no reason why people should start to death. there's no reason why people shouldn't have healthcare, we have got the technology, We have got know-how. We should push for these uh, these changes, but also be mindful of the way in which these forms of oppression and exploitation are systemic. You know, the, 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 you cannot remove these problems without eventually seeking to go beyond the systemic logic that, that produces them.
0: That's I think that's very well said. That's a nice way to wrap it up. I, I say I call that in my uh, American uh, colloquial uh, manner socialism for regular ass people.
1: <laughs> I like it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> these are these are you know I mean there's no you know socialist politics is, or I was going to say they don't have to be but they ought not be. They I mean they can't be these esoteric uh, concerns no, of definitely. those who spend too much time reading dusty books in academia. Yeah. They have to be the day-to-day yeah. needs and demands of of the masses or or it's nothing, right? And I think you know leading us into the B side here, uh we're going to be talking more about the the way that uh, Corbin and momentum uh, and the the movement that's catalyzed around what I'm calling the Bernie Sanders movement. I mean, of course, it has a lot uh, more of a radical and militant uh, legacy than that in the United States and elsewhere. They're taking up the needs and demands of regular people and they're translating that into an anti-capitalist struggle of a certain kind. But that's not to say that this this uh, road is not uh, pocked uh, with with uh, you know. Uh, was going to say potholes, but then that's not severe enough. I mean, I think the bridge will is likely to collapse uh, from underneath of your feet if you're not careful. I mean, the, the this is a very fraught path, and uh, we're going to lay out on the B side some of the ways in which we can look at non-reformist reforms and use the terrain of the capitalist state as a way of seeing, uh, uh you know, uh, as a way of seeing these dynamics, so that we can try to work to develop the capacities to avoid those pitfalls. In the present, so any any parting words for the people on the A side?
1: No, really, no. I've just really enjoyed this discussion so far, and uh, it's it's nice that you read my my article. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah.
0: Everybody, look, I you know, I, people say you know Adam, you flatter your guests sometimes. Well, of course I do because I'm the one who uh, I I select them. Who the hell do you think uh, you know phones up these people or whatever and, and says, "Hey, come on my show. It's me. It's me, people. Uh, I only bring on the people that I enjoy." And, and I really enjoyed this piece uh, very much. I'm going to post it on the show notes. People should read this. We, we didn't get to all of the 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 nuts and bolts, but you should read it yourself to to see see the rest of it. We're going to carry it over to the B side. Uh, this this discussion is uh, for all activists, um, not just dusty academics, but uh, anyone who's engaged. And trying to, uh, you know, overthrow—I uh, think uh, this barbaric system that we're we're forced to live under—should uh, should tune in and listen in. So, uh, until then, Ed, thanks so much for joining us on the Dead Planet Society.
1: Thanks, Adam. I enjoyed it. Cheers. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother.